The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Uh, tonight we have a number of issues in front of us that I think uh, have generally caused churches some difficulty, uh, caused churches to stumble. Uh, the, for example, the clause that an elder should be a um, uh, husband of one wife or one woman man. We're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to talk about um, the, uh, the issue of gender and authority, uh, women and their role of leadership in the church. Um, uh, some fun things tonight. And um, uh, we're also going to go back and do some more work on congregational polity and how that can be defended. So um, I think uh, it's good for us to stop right now and just ask that the Lord would guide us as we look at these scriptures and um, uh, strengthen us as we study. Father, I thank you for this time tonight as we look at various aspects of church leadership. Uh, we pray that you would send forth your spirit now and guide us into all truth Help us to embrace whatever the scripture says cheerfully and gladly and trust that if it is biblical and right, then it's healthy and good for the church. It's good for the members. It's good for families, for husbands and wives and their relationships with each other, for parents and children. It's good for our outreach. It's good for the glory of God and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. So therefore, the only thing in front of us now is to learn what the scripture says and to joyfully embrace it and obey it. We pray that you'd help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin uh, on the general outline that I've given you, uh, page 9, and the issue of husband of one wife, the way most of the English translations uh, give it uh, to us. The literalistic, a literalistic translation would be one woman man. That would be a literalistic translation, a one woman man. Uh, there are three words in the Greek, and that would come right over in those three English words. What does it mean? Now, uh, Usually when people look at that and ask questions concerning elders, what is the first thing they think of? What question immediately pops in their minds? The question of divorce. And isn't it interesting because the word actually isn't mentioned at all. Now, we should know uh, very well because there are other verses that talk openly about divorce. And therein lies the problem. The word divorce doesn't appear here. And so therefore, some wonder if it's talking about divorce or something else. So the question would be phrased, can a divorced and remarried man or just a divorced man serve as an elder? That's the issue there. Well, there are four different ways or options of looking at the phrase one woman man, which appears in, in actually a number of places. Um, the first is that elders must be married. That's one possible option, that it's teaching that you know, an elder must have a wife. Okay, a second option is that elders must not be polygamists. In other words, they must not have plural wives or multiple wives. That's another option. A third option is that elders uh, may marry only once. Um, the, and that's as a subset of that then would be the question of divorce and remarriage. Elders may marry only once in their lives. The fourth, and it's the one that I hold to, is that elders must be maritally and sexually above reproach. In other words, that an elder's home life, his marriage life, is going to be a focus. And therefore, he must have a marriage that is um, able to be put on display. He must be able to say in his marital life and his home life, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, believe me, I don't mean to say that, that Christ was married, but I think there the idea would be, follow me as I follow Christ's instructions or commands, as I have followed Christ as he wants me to be as a husband and a father. And I think one of, the, one of the indications we've given, one of the important aspects of elder ministry, so important, is that issue of role modeling. There are a number of verses that talk about it. We've touched on them before. But uh, Philippians 3, uh, 17 is uh, one example where he says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern you have in us. Philippians 3.17. It speaks of a pattern of lifestyle. And so, uh, basically, a, a leader in the church has to be able to present his lifestyle as a pattern to follow. And how vital is that? How important is it that the church have godly role models? It's so important. 
So very important. Jesus himself, the ultimate role model. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He is our role model so that we should follow, it says, in his steps. A very famous expression. Charles Sheldon wrote a book. That's where What Would Jesus Do came from. And the idea is that Jesus, in his dying on the cross, in the way he handled his enemies, is a role model of how we should deal with our enemies as well. And so first uh, Peter chapter 2, Jesus the ultimate role model. But then Apostle Paul comes along and says things like, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He's saying in Philippians 3.17, there's a pattern of lifestyle being commended. And this pattern, this word tupos, a very important word, there's a, there's a, a sense of a pattern of Christian living, just like there is a pattern of Christian doctrine. And so the pattern of lifestyle and of doctrine must be commended to the next generation. And so, therefore, we really do need godly men who are willing to stand up and uh, set themselves up as an example. And again, not saying that they, those individuals are perfect. We, we can't have that because that would be of no use to the church because there is a null set. It's zero that would meet that. An elder must be perfect. Uh, well, then we have no elders. We already have the scriptural testimony that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 7, we wrestle with flesh, Galatians 5, all the time. We're not looking for perfect men, but we do need uh, those that are willing to have their life uh, style, their, their lives under scrutiny. And so uh, I think the, the zeroing in here on the marriage life, the home life, I think is very important. So those are the four options. Let's look at them carefully. The first is that, the, that an elder must be married. An elder must be married. One woman man then would require that an elder be married. The problem with that, of course, is that Paul advocates the single lifestyle as an advantage in ministry in 1 Corinthians 7. You would think that he, in that uh, chapter, would uh, say, of course, the, the exception to this are elders, and they do need to be married. That doesn't really make any sense. Now, I respect somebody that wants to hold to this very literalistically and say an elder must be married, but I just think it flies in the face of the example Paul gives us of himself in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, so I don't think this is the best way to understand this. Also, uh, if you're you know, going to be extremely literal, literalistic. Uh, imagine a man who is married uh, and uh, there's some kind of tragedy that takes his wife from him. Must he then resign uh, his uh, position as an elder? If he's a vocational elder, um, uh, does he have to get another job? I mean, so, you know, you can imagine all the other elders and the church members there weeping with him in the hospital room when his wife has left this world and uh, we'll help you get another job. You know, we, we enjoyed it while it was it's just unbelievable. It's hard for me to imagine that. So, but again, there's a hermeneutic here that I'm challenging, a hermeneutic that I do not find acceptable. So you've got problems with 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, secondly, elders must not be polygamists. Well, this is a comfortable option. If we could hold questions to the end, please. Uh, this is a comfortable option, all right? Uh, it does, does make it easy. The problem is that, first of all, I don't necessarily think that polygamy was a big problem at that time. And there's an even stronger issue, and that's in the issue of 1 Timothy 5.9. If you look at 1 Timothy 5.9, it's speaking there of widows. And widows, um, uh, there's a list of widows, um, and uh, widows that are going to be helped or cared for by the church. And one of the requirements for a widow that's going to be helped is that she be a, a one-man woman. It's the exact same Greek words, only you exchange woman for man or wife or husband, that kind of thing. Well, I don't know of any struggle there was with what we call polyandry. In other words, one woman having multiple husbands. There's really not an example of it in the Greco-Roman world or in the uh, Judaic world. As a matter of fact, it's so much unthinkable that you remember those Sadducees coming to Jesus with the uh, question, that ridiculous question, about the seven brothers who are all married to one woman. You remember that? And they all die one after the other, and then finally the woman dies. It's a very interesting case study. There's no example that it ever has happened. And I said before that the uh, seventh brother was the most courageous man in the history of the Bible, all right, that he would actually marry this black widow or whatever it is that's going on, you know, one dead husband after another, all of them her brother, uh, you know, his brothers, and like he's going to go ahead and wade right in and try again. Um, I'm thinking as just as an insurance guy, I would not sell any life insurance to this guy. But uh, long story short, it never happened. It's just a case study, but it's just unthinkable in the Jewish mind that she would be married to all seven at the resurrection. 
And so I just don't think that that's the best way to understand it. Again, I respect people that hold these views. I'm just saying hermeneutically, is this the best way to understand it? Thirdly, and this is the one that most people zero in on, the question of remarriage, divorce and remarriage, or even some people are going to take it so far as to say that uh, you really just can't have been married to two women in your life, even if you're, you know, you're a widower and then remarried. Uh, and believe me, there are people that say all of these things. I think there's a desire to be biblical, biblically faithful. There's a desire to uphold the scriptures and to, uh, um, you know, to be faithful to them, to try to understand them as best we can. And uh, uh, a friend of mine at uh, Mark Dever at Capitol Hill, there's a man in his uh, a church that believes that an elder must be married uh, only one time in his life and he must have multiple children. Uh, not just one child, because the Greek is plural. So he must manage his children well. And so there's all this thing if you have just one child. Again, um, that kind of hermeneutic, I see it as a, a viable uh, approach, but is it the best? Um, so let's zero in on the issue of divorce. Um, to me, I feel that the issue of divorce has to be settled another place. Uh, since the word doesn't even uh, appear here, we have to actually just ask the question, um, you know, what what scriptures are relevant to the issue of divorce and remarriage? Um, then the question is, okay, is there a lawful divorce and lawful remarriage? That's one question. And if you've established that, can a man who has been lawfully divorced and remarried uh, serve as an elder? And there are all kinds of different opinions on that. Um, for me, uh, you know, I think the issue of, I think there are clearly unlawful divorces. Uh, Jesus clearly desca- describes those in Luke and in Matthew, uh, anyone who divorces his wife, he says in Matthew, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Well, the implication, you're committing adultery because uh, the divorce was, was unlawful in God's sight. And so there's a multiple marriage there in some sense, or there's a, a multiple relationship. So for me, um, I just think that's an unlawful situation. A man like that cannot serve. Uh, and actually should never have been remarried. There are difficult issues, of course. Um, you know, if it's already happened, you come into a situation, what do you do if the person has remarried? Um, but those are issues that are beyond our present situation. I think that in that case, person should not serve as an elder. However, uh, should an elder, should a man serve uh, who, let's say his wife, uh, he, he was uh, converted um, uh, she didn't want to be a Christian. She abandons him, 1 Corinthians 7, or she commits adultery. He didn't do anything wrong, etc. Then you're getting into the issue, is, is there such a thing as a lawful uh, remarriage? And again, there's, there's dis- dispute about this. John MacArthur says uh, there is a provision for divorce uh, for the innocent party, etc., the, the man who's been abandoned, and that divorce does end that relationship. It ends that marriage, and so therefore he's free to remarry. He makes the point, MacArthur does, that in the... Uh, Old Covenant, uh, the adulteress would have been um, stoned to death, in which case the widower would have been a widower. You know, he would have been, you know, free to remarry because his spouse would be dead. Uh, His argument then concludes with this um, concept, uh, just because there is grace in allowing the adulteress to uh, continue to live, why would he be at a disadvantage? But then there are others like John Piper that don't buy that line of reasoning and it's basically married for life. As long as you're the person you stood up in front of God and in front of witnesses and made a uh, commitment to is still breathing on the face of the earth, God in some way sees those two as married in some sense. So let me tell you something. Anytime you have an issue in which John MacArthur and John Piper disagree, you, you have some interesting things. For me, uh, what I would like to say is that uh, an elder's home life must be exemplary. I do not believe that divorced... Um, and remarried men should serve as elders. That's my personal conviction. I think that they shouldn't. I think they can serve in other ways. Um, I respect people who disagree with me, but um, for me, I have a hard time believing that that you know there, there are any truly innocent divorce situations. You know that most of most of the men are going to say, or women, depending who you know, even if they're the innocent party, you know there were issues in our marriage that we were not dealing with properly. We didn't resolve them properly, etc. Now, some will call me ungracious. They'll say I'm being too strict, et cetera. Um, that's just what happens when you get into controversial areas. But for me, I think that the bottom line, and I believe with Alexander Strauch and others, that one woman man means an elder must be maritally and sexually above reproach. He, he must be able to present his home life and his marriage life as an example and a role model to follow. Now I'll take questions on this. Steve, you had a question? Um, yeah. 
since we've already established that First Timothy 3 is outlining qualifications, mm -hmm. a manner of a test for office, how can you have a test that means anything if there is no situation which demonstrates the accuracy of the test or not? And what would you do if a person, say, um, wasn't married, then uh, was elected as an elder or appointed as an elder and proved to be un unworthy, then you've got a worse situation or um, children's situations. What's your question? Well, it seems like there would have to be factual information mm -hmm. related to the qualifications here. If a person's not married, doesn't have children, you don't have it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So well, that's, nothing. Mm -hmm. So you would say that the Apostle Paul would be not qualified as an elder? I, oh, I was always taught that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. Mm -hmm. And in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be over 40 and mm -hmm. married. There's no scriptural evidence that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Yeah, I try to find, but that, that was You'll look in vain because it's yeah. not there. No, but, but we don't know he wasn't. We don't. We don't. But he said, as I am, in 1 Corinthians 7. So there's actually a leaning that he had no, no spouse. And I would ask you, um, once you lose your wife, are you then disqualified? No, because the qualification really doesn't have anything to do with the wife or husband. Mm -hmm. Because the, the phrase was a one-woman man. If you had been married, uh, if you have had only one woman, mm -hmm. you're a one-woman man. For how long do you have to be married? It doesn't matter. A week? Well, it says enough to have children. It says having children. Uh -huh. Can you adopt? And Could you adopt? I would assume. Okay. I mean, so a week. I think that, but I think that the, the, the key is, mm -hmm. this is a standard test. Right. For instance, a single person, um, it's tough to see how they would run a household if they don't have a household mm -hmm. to run. I mean, how do they handle children? How do they disperse money? How do they... I mean, anybody who has kids knows that all of a sudden, you, at one time being single, mm -hmm. even a single person, all of a sudden you're married, guess what? You have more responsibility. Then mm -hmm. you have kids, then you have more responsibility. Mm -hmm. then, and that's the key. How does a person, an elder, handle his household? Mm -hmm. And with all these responsibilities. Why? Because there's a lot of responsibility in a church. Mm -hmm. Well, those are valid points, and that's why I think it's a respectable position. However, I don't think that, uh, that you're dealing well with the 1 Corinthians 7 argument. Um, he never mentions elders there at all and is advocating it as superior lifestyle in terms of serving the Lord. So I don't, I don't want to spend the whole time debating. I appreciate your views. I think they're good views, um, and I respect them. So any other? Yeah. You probably said this. Um, do you make any decision whether a person is divorced before they become a Christian or not? Um, you know, uh, some some make a lot of distinctions there. They, you know, they, for them, conversion means a lot. People like Piper make no distinctions. They just say that this is an ordinance. You stand before God. You're making a, a promise. That they would say that the divorce and remarriage or divorce passages don't even mention anything about conversion. I tend to be in that camp. I think it's a commitment you've made for life and uh, that you need to stick with it. So. So if a person's living in gross immorality but not married and then becomes a Christian, they could then qualify? Well, uh, if they could qualify, in other words, if they're like a heroin addict or something like that? Is I'm that saying if a person, for instance, is a whoremonger and then becomes Christian, yeah. never married, mm -hmm. and then maybe becomes married to me, whether they're married or not, after they're Christian, I'm not asking that. Mm -hmm. saying the distinction here is actually the marital life. Well, I don't think that they qualify for what I've described here. In other words, that their marital life is, is above reproach, a marital and sexual life is above reproach. But, you know, it's a good question that you're asking. You know, the issue of conversion, uh, I think the idea is that at the present time they're presenting their lives. And that's what, actually, that's what uh, Grudem says. That's why he goes with the polygamy thing, which is very attractive, by the way. The polygamy thing is great because it's really not an issue at all in our present. I don't know any polygamists. Well, actually, there might be some in Utah. We Actually, I'll tell you this. With the whole gay marriage thing, watch out for where we're heading in our country. Watch out for uh, all kinds of interesting redefinitions of marriage. And I'll bet the Mormons will be leading the way in getting back to multiple uh, multiple marriages. But it's a good point you're bringing up. Um, and I've often wrestled with the question, why is there such a zeroing in on marriage? You know, why is it okay for like a, 
a reformed murderer to be an elder. You know, it's not even mentioned. Um, you know, why is it okay for all these other things, but there's this one issue? For me, I just have to stand in there and say, apparently there's something important going on with the family, with marriage and with children, and there has to be a focus on that. So I don't have all the answers on that one. You know, I, all I'm saying is, you know, you look at a guy like, well, David or others that commit very serious sins and then they repent of them, you know, they're welcome back. Or the prodigal son, you know, who squanders his father's money. As long as he didn't get married in the time, he's all right. It seems questionable to me. So, yeah, go ahead. Aren't we all sinners mm-hmm. saved by grace? I mean, if, and, and isn't it difficult to say that, well, you're a bigger sinner than he is, and once they get saved, what's their life like after they're saved? Isn't yeah. that what you're working on? Obviously it is, you know, and I would not, I would not say that you're a bigger sinner. As a matter of fact, I really think one of the key issues of being a good elder is to recognize, you know, your own sin, your own weakness, and how much you've been saved by grace. I actually said, you know, a couple weeks ago, I think this is one of the reasons that you don't lay hands on somebody too soon, because I think in so many cases, people's doctrine gets ahead of their character development, you know, and so the doctrine hasn't changed much in years, but they've started to realize how much grace they personally need every day and how much they need uh, to be forgiven. So, all right, so that was fun topic number one. Let's look at fun topic number two. Um, yes, sir. Have you run across anybody who would give an interpretation to this that uh, a man must have been a sexual partner to only one woman, especially in light of 1 Corinthians 6.16, which says that there is a union, they become one flesh, a man with even a harlot? Um, I haven't heard anyone articulate that view, but I think it would be consistent with these kind of questions. I think that a person would would see it that way. Um, so, you know, obviously fornication, you know, there's, you know, I think it's fascinating in that particular passage that uh, he uses what we consider to be the marriage verse, you know, the one flesh verse, uh, et cetera. So, I mean, let's face it, the whole human sexuality issue is one of the great weaknesses of the human race. It's one of the great focal points, therefore, of Satan's activities, and uh, it's, uh, you know, you look at right through the book of Revelation, sexual immorality is mentioned right at the very end, outside are the dogs, the sexually immoral, etc., so right through it's a weakness. Um, because it's a weakness, Satan, Satan is going to focus his, his attention, his activity there. Because there's much sin there, then there, there also must the grace of God be, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And yet there is the standard concerning leadership in the church. So You're actually saying someone who had um, a, an unlawful or an ungodly relationship prior to mm-hmm. becoming a Christian even would have disqualified himself? No, I'm not saying that. That's what our brother uh, Ted Danchi was, was asking. I don't know if he was actually suggesting it. I'm not saying that. Um, but others might. You know, can be, yeah, by that view. And I would not say, don't misunderstand me, that if you uh, sleep with a woman... Uh, you know, commit fornication, uh, that you actually have married that individual. I think there is something else about making a vow. I really think it's got to do with a vow that you make in front of witnesses and in front of God where you know that you're committing yourself to be a person's spouse, a husband, a wife. That, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about this. What is the marriage moment, you know? Because, you know, you can get some weak-kneed, uh, you know, bridegrooms that don't quite make it there. I mean, everybody's there, but he didn't show up. You know, I've heard those stories. I've never been there. It hadn't happened to me yet, and it better not. I'm telling you. I mean, if everybody's there, you need to show up. Um, but uh, they're not married because he hasn't made the pledge yet. He hasn't made the commitment. You know, others question if, if there's no consummation of the relationship, are they married? They are. I, I just think the moment that you make that vow, it really just comes down to a vow made in the setting that we generally know culturally as a wedding, like, uh, for example, the rehearsal the night before, you can say all the words, but you're not married, you know? Um, and I actually don't have them say the words. I'm a little bit, not, I don't know. I just feel like I stop short of the vows. When we're practicing whatever, we don't do the vows. I just, you know. But we all know that even if I practice the vows, they're not married because it's not a wedding. It's a wedding rehearsal, and there's a big difference between the two. But it's when you're there, everyone's there, she's wearing her dress, you're wearing it, and everybody's there, you know. And in every culture, it's a little bit different, but you know what it is. It's called a wedding. And when you get up and you say, I do, that's it. At that moment, Satan changes, and from that point on, he's driving you apart sexually, not together. Before that, he was sure getting, trying to get you together. So let me tell you something. It's not just a piece of paper, all right? All you have to do is look at what Satan's doing, because he's trying to get the couple together right up until they say, I do. And then at that moment, he's like trying to keep them apart and trying to get them not to be together, 1 Corinthians 7. So it is a very important commitment. 
All I'm saying, and Steve, I think, would agree with this, it's a very, very significant thing to lie with someone sexually. And that's, uh, you know, to use Genesis 2. Um, I think there was another question. Hang on, Steve, there's another. Go ahead. Minor. I like minor at this point. Major is killing me, but I'll go with minor. Uh, provision in, I think it's First Corinthians, of a betrothal relationship and staying right. in the betrothal as opposed to getting married after converting. And I'm just curious if maybe this has some implication there because it, the the language being a one woman man or you know a man of one woman perhaps could provide because they seem to be continuing in this betrothal relationship. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that you know is, is related as opposed to saying a husband of one wife in a mm-hmm. literal sense. Well, I think their their betrothal relationships were at a higher level than ours were. You look at the whole relationship between Mary and um, uh, Joseph and Mary, and it uses the word divorce. And they weren't; they were definitely not. It was clear that they were in the betrothal period because he had never known her. He had never. I mean, she was a virgin. That was the whole point. But yet, the word divorce is used there. So um, I'm not certain if that's how we would understand. Are you talking about First Corinthians seven about a, a father dealing with his virgin daughter and she's been betrothed? Is that the... no? There, there's something relating to um, the two remaining as they are, but if they like are burning, then they ought to go ahead and not burning, but um, filled with lust, struggling with lust. They right. ought to go ahead and, and be married. Yeah. But it seems as though there's provision for them to continue in their betrothed relationship, mm-hmm. not consummating it and being married. So I was curious if maybe this is... I'm not sure that that's what's going on there, but brothers, I have not worked hard on 1 Corinthians 7. I know that in general, Paul is advocating singleness in that chapter, but not for everybody. He clearly says it's not for everybody. And Steve, you had another question. Yeah, I was just going to comment on the, the whole sexual relationship thing that we're finding now with the rise of STDs and everything else that a person really is, in a very real way, a composite of all the any sexual relations that they've had, epidemiologically, biologically, emotionally, you know, just in so many different ways. Well, all that to say, God's ways are best. And, um, you know, we need to be faithful in teaching our children. We need to protect our children. Um, I think it's a very important job that a father has toward his daughters to keep his daughters safe until marriage and present her as a virgin to her um, to her husband. Um, so that's, those are all very good points. If the answers I've given are not satisfying to you, brothers, pray for me and pray for our church to have wisdom. Um, these are not easy passages. Speaking of that, let's go on to the issue of gender and authority and uh, women uh, serving as elders or really not serving as elders. Yeah, let's, uh, let's enjoy that. Let's go ahead. Well, let's not. Let's just skip it. Let's just skip it. Well, I'm trusting in the fact that we've already been through this as a church and uh, hopefully, you know, but of course there's a lot of new faces and, uh, you know, I haven't changed my mind, okay, if you all want to know what I'm thinking, but of course I'm looking at a lot of new faces, so maybe we need to go through it again. I'll tell you this, the scripture hasn't changed, and I haven't changed, okay, so uh, if, if I guess to some degree, look, there's all kinds of things, and if you want my whole 33-page thing on gender and authority, I think it would be of some benefit to you, ask for it. I didn't crank a bunch of them out tonight, but I wrote a document that became the focal point of my teaching at the time, and I would urge you to get it and read it. Um, I don't have time tonight. We're not, I'm not choosing to take the time to go through all of that. That was a multi-night study. Um, you already have some of it, though, in that we talked about just authority. And I think it's best to start with authority and to try to understand it. But we already did that in this, in this teaching a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to go over all that. I think we just need to get to the heart of the matter tonight on the issue of gender. First of all, let me say something. There is a satanic attack in our culture on the significance of gender. Okay, it's a satanic attack. God created them male and female, and therefore it matters to God. It does. It just matters to God that you're a male or that you're a female. And God delights in whatever you are. He delights in it. It's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing to be a man if you're a man. And it's a wonderful thing to be a woman if you're a woman. It's a wonderful thing because God made it. And uh, do you see, do you perceive this attack on gender in our culture? It's not just homosexuality. It really, it has to do with gender roles as well, but across the board. And here's the thing. There's another issue before we get to it, and this doesn't have to do with gender, but it relates to the issue. And that is the sense that your personal significance as a human being is connected to what you can achieve or accomplish. Um, It's very much a performance thing going on in our culture. You are worth more if you can do more. You are worth more if you have a more ornate or elaborate resume. If you can achieve more things, you're worth more as a human being. 
Do you see that as well? And I think there's that sense in which, I mean, and it, and it, and it fits into some of these other uh, bioethical questions like uh, euthanasia. People at the end of their life aren't worth anything. Or if they're quadriplegic, their quality of life has gone down, and so let's just euthanize them. I mean, this is disgusting. It's repulsive. It is not Christian. We believe that our worth and value as human beings comes from being created in the image of God. And we would add as Christians, having been recreated or renewed by the Spirit as children of God. That's where it comes from. And no one can take that from you. It's yours. It's an inheritance that can't perish, spoil, or fade. That's where your value comes from. So you're worth every bit as much when you're in the nursing home, barely able to move, as you are in the prime of your life doing all kinds of stuff. And I think that's another issue here is that we're really enamored with the stuff we can do. God is building his church. It's God that does it. And he will choose to use us for a while and then use others. All right. Our value and worth doesn't come from how much God used us to build the church. You really have to believe that. I mean, it's just so insipid the way it just crawls in there and you feel better about yourself if you're doing more and worse about yourself if you're doing less. Or if you get to be chosen, uh, forget gender again for a moment, if you get to be chosen as an elder, you can feel, well, God must like me more or I'm more valid to God. And those those ideas have got to be rejected. They're just faulty. And you can see how they do play into the gender uh, equation because the reason people get upset, sadly, I think, is that they feel that their personhood and value and worth is being attacked. And it really isn't. What we have to do as a church is, as I prayed at the beginning, we have to discern what does the scripture say? Because if God is saying this, then we can't imagine that God is levying an insult or an attack at that which he has established and made. He's not. And let's keep in mind another thing. On judgment day, we will be assessed, our lives will be assessed. I'm not talking about our souls will be judged. Our souls will be judged based on the cross, personal faith in Christ. Justification by faith apart from works, that's the core of what we believe. So your works don't even play in at all at that point. Neither does your gender. And by the way, I think that's what in Christ there's neither male nor female means, is that there's total level ground at the cross for being a Christian, for being justified. Galatians is all about justification by faith apart from works. And so the issue there is that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew or Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but all are one. There's a unity language there in terms of we're all Christians. We're all one at the cross. So uh, the fact of the matter is, on Judgment Day, then, in terms of your life, your works, what you had to present to God, he will assess you and judge you based on what he entrusted to you and what he expected you to do. Like the widow with her two copper coins. She put in, he said, more than anyone else. He doesn't, he doesn't judge the way we do. He doesn't assess the way we do. And so, therefore, he is going to judge your life based on what he entrusted to you and what he expected back from you. It's a stewardship matter. He's entrusting something to you. Based on your faithfulness, he will reward you. And I think that's huge. When I preached a a Mother's Day sermon a few years ago, maybe even last year, I don't remember, um, the years are starting to melt together, and it's getting worse. I mean, I'll, I'll say this all the time. It was just last week. No, it wasn't, says my wife. It was four weeks ago. And she knows because it's not happening to her. Whatever's happening to me, it's not happening to her. And that's just not fair, but there it is. Anyway, Proverbs 31. One of the things I said was, I linked Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31 woman, and it says at the end, give her her rewards at the gate, something like that. It had to do with her praise for her life, what she was doing. And I zeroed in and I said, isn't that really the issue? We're talking about works. We know that works don't justify anyway. So then we're talking about issue of rewards and we're talking about assessment on judgment day and God being pleased. As Christians, we should care about that. We really should. We should not want our lives wasted. We should want the commendation that comes, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, then we should learn on what basis it will come. And uh, very plainly, I believe it says in, in, in Matthew 10, he sends out the apostles two by two. And as I've already established, I really don't think any of us can be apostles. So that's a, that's a role that's taken by them. Uh, but he sends them out two by two. And he says, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. And he's talking about hospitality. I think in context, uh, it, it's taking them in and welcoming them. At least it's, it's talking about a personal welcoming of the message. But... 
you know, when he's talking earlier in that, he says, whatever town or village you go, search for some per- person, the worthy person, stay at his house until you leave. And, and don't look for a lot of places. Just find a base of operations and then they'll feed you and they'll take, they'll put you up, they'll take care of you. And then you just go do your preaching ministry. But if you can't find any house, nobody will receive you. It'll be better uh, on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. If no one will receive you. But then he goes back to that issue, I think, of the hospitality given to the messengers. They're going out two by two. He says, anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these messengers because he is my disciple, he will never lose his reward. So that's huge for me. That means support ministries are every bit as rewardable on Judgment Day as the out front preaching kind of ministries. You see what I'm saying? That's incredibly important. What that means then is on Judgment Day, if you were called to a support ministry and did it faithfully, you would get the same reward as somebody who was called to an apostolic preaching ministry and did it faithfully. It's all about faithfulness. So having kind of cleared, cleared away what I think are very annoying and hindering misconceptions about the Christian life, it's easier then to just address the scriptures that teach. Now, we would not imagine that there would be any problem with a woman being an elder um, or uh, uh, pastor or missionary, anything she wanted to do if there were not some prohibition somewhere in scripture. The issue wouldn't necessarily come up, but there has to be some prohibition. Um, if there's no prohibition, then you should just assume that the general commands given to evangelize and to preach and whatever and gifting, if there's genders never mentioned, then you would just step up and do a gifted ministry. The issue is there are prohibitions. And so if you are an egalitarian, you then have to work on what they call these troubling or difficult or distressing or confusing passages. That's what they call them. But they prejudge them as difficult and troubling and distressing because they don't fit into their worldview. All right. So for me, I don't think they're as difficult and distressing and troubling and hard to interpret as they make them out to be. As a matter of fact, I think they're pretty plain. And also, the fact is they fit into an entire presentation of gender across the entire 66 books of the Bible. It's not an anomaly. It's like shocking out of nowhere is 1 Timothy 2 and uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, these passages out of nowhere. No, as a matter of fact, Paul shows in 1 uh, uh, 1 Timothy 2 that this is a creation ordinance right from the very beginning that God established um, men as leaders uh, within marriage. Uh, And then he extends it there uh, to leadership in the church as well. So let's uh, look at 1 Timothy 2 for a moment. 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse... Let's just start at verse 11. The whole passage is uh, valuable, but just in the interest of time. Uh, Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, etc., etc. Now, I want you to notice that I didn't stop at the end of chapter 2 because I think in this particular case, the chapter division isn't helpful for us. It's not an accident that he goes from this teaching on women to right away the qualifications of elder. Um, so it's not like they're in two entirely different parts of Paul's corpus, his writing or whatever. Frankly, even if it were, it doesn't matter much because if he said it, that's it. But I think it's important to also notice the flow of his argumentation. He goes right from this restriction into describing elders. And so, therefore, I just think it's very plain that when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, and then he immediately starts talking about elders and that they need to be able to teach, etc., that women cannot be elders. Uh, women cannot be elders. Uh, there is an unbelievable amount of work on verse 11 to 11, or, uh, sorry, verse 12 to 12. Um, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man. She must be silent. You would not believe how creative people get with that verse. It's astonishing the work that they do. They go to arcane Greek grammatical constructions. They talk about various, all kinds of things. For me, I think it's really not that difficult. It's really quite plain. I do believe that two different things are being prohibited here. I don't think it's just one, namely authoritative teaching. 
I think it's both teaching and having authority that's forbidden here. In other words, just in general, in the church, men should lead and women should, women should learn. Now, let's not pass over that, by the way, in verse 11. Christ clearly wanted women to learn doctrine. There's no doubt about that. That whole Martha and Mary encounter makes that plain. All right. And that was revolutionary. It was, it was quite striking. As a matter of fact, I think it was somewhat offensive to Martha that Mary was taking the role of a disciple. It just seemed anomalous. Her place was to get up and keep house and to do all these kinds of things for Jesus. And it's so amazing. Jesus is so unpredictable. By the way, that's the whole trouble I have with the whole what would Jesus do thing. In so many cases, I don't know what he would do. As a matter of fact, if it weren't for the indwelling spirit, you know, I'd really wonder what he would do. He was constantly surprising people. Uh, he was not fitting into a mold. And so he wanted, he wanted Mary to sit at his feet and listen as a disciple because she was a disciple. She was. First Peter 3 says the women are co-heirs uh, with you of the gracious gift of life. And you only get that by doctrine, by believing the, the gospel. And so women are disciples. And so he wants, verse 11, a woman to learn, but she should learn in quietness and full submission. Uh, there's a submission there, submissiveness that he is commanding uh, that's consistent also with the marriage commands as well. And do not permit a woman to teach what they say as well. That was just Paul. And I've heard it said, you know, I don't care what Paul said, but you realize what dangerous ground you're on when you start doing that? I like the book of Romans. I mean, I learn a lot from the book of Romans. If we're going to start throwing Paul out, we're in big trouble. Uh, the fact of the matter is we can't because he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. So it really makes a huge difference that Paul didn't permit it. He's speaking clearly as an apostle of Christ here. But look at his logic. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. One of the most common distortions of this text is that some unique or unusual situation was going on there in Ephesus. The women were teaching false doctrine or they were, uh, you know, there was a, a specific problem with the women teachers there and so he's shutting them down because of those problems. Well, that is not Paul's way of solving problems. You know, to sweep away the innocent with the guilty kind of thing. So because of the actions of a few bad women, he's shutting them all down. That's not the way he would usually do it. But that even more significant is what is his reasoning here? He's going back not to the curse. Not, he's not going back to Genesis 3. He's going back to creation. He's going back to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 establishes order. Genesis 1, there establishes, it establishes equality in the image of God. Equality. Both of them, male and female, just right there in the image of God. But Genesis 2 establishes Adamic priority. And it's the priority, I believe, both over his household in his relationship with his wife, and over the human race as our federal head. Uh, Adam is first. He is our head. He represented us very poorly at the tree, but he was our head. And it was in Adam, not in Eve, that the human race fell. And so there's a clear leadership. So therefore, the argumentation here that there was something going on in Ephesus is out the window. It doesn't matter at all because Paul's logic has nothing to do with the situation in Ephesus. Um, and then he's, he goes on to the issue of deception. Uh, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became, uh, became a sinner. I do not fully understand how that fits in here. Some people say that there's an intrinsic tendency toward deception uh, in, in women. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. Why he brings it up, I don't know. He's just stating a fact. Um, some have argued that many uh, heresies and false teachings have come through women. That is true. More have come through men. You know, you could argue back saying there have been more men teachers and therefore there's going to be more opportunity for men to give false doctrine. We can go back and forth. The, the bottom line is the question in front of us, should women be elders? I think it's pretty clearly established. The answer is no. Um, there are other passages we could look at. Uh, Christ's example of choosing only uh, men apostles is very significant to me. Uh, remember what I said. He didn't care what his surrounding culture thought uh, about. He was willing to be uh, very radical, very revolutionary. He was willing to have Mary sit at his feet, but he didn't establish her or any woman as an apostle. And uh, I, to, I reject the concept that Jesus started in motion, you know, uh, the feminism that he wanted to see established, but he was hoping that later generations would finish the job, so to speak. I don't see that at all. I think he's upholding the very thing that he wanted to uphold. He wanted women to learn. He wanted them to be, I mean, to be disciples, but just not apostles. All right. So the summary there is on page 22, a variety of things. We didn't look at 1 Corinthians 14 or um, some of these others, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 establishes, uh, you know, it says Christ is the head of, uh, that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. Yes, go ahead. Maybe someone in the room is. I'm not actually at this moment, but you go ahead. Has anybody ever made the case creatively that um, uh, Mary Magdalene, Christ instructed them to go back to the apostles and tell them what to do to go see him in Galilee, that he was alive? Hmm. Or was it, did he tell them to actually tell them? No, he gave them a message, go uh, see me, go ahead of me in Galilee, et cetera. Okay, so so. for creative. I've heard it. It's actually no joke. It's a major. It's a major uh, f- uh, feature of some of the egalitarians that Christ entrusted this important message to women. Um, but did he establish them as authoritative t- uh, leaders and teachers in the church at that moment? Clearly not. Are you going to say something, Paul? Well, you've got the messenger Phoebe in in Romans, and I, I mean, I think the, the status of messenger is very different than the status of, mm-hmm. of teacher. Yeah, I mean, we could argue actually that Phoebe was a deaconess. Um, you know. Uh, and that's a, that's a whole different other, uh, other issue. Um, as a matter of fact, um, as we look at uh, the issue of, of deacons and deaconesses, why don't we go ahead and take a minute and look at 1 Timothy uh, 3.11. Um, this is another fun one. We get all the fun ones tonight. Next week will be a little bit different. But um, I had all these other sheets here, uh, biblical support for congregationalism. So did you see that one? Apparently we're not getting to that tonight. Um, appointment of elders, how that's to be done. All right, we'll get to that one next week. But hey, now I'm a week ahead. Praise God. Um, I don't know what I was thinking. We're going to sail right through all these controversial things. No problem. All right, but let's talk about women deacons. Hey, this is a historic moment here if I'm actually standing up here and advocating what that draft says, that there will be women deacons in our church if the church allows and wills, if God wills. Why would I say that? Well, let me tell you something. I believe in a hierarchy of certainty of truth. Okay, not all truths in the Bible are equally clear and equally defensible and equally certain in our hearts. They are all equally clear and certain in heaven. Okay, we are not going to have any discussions or disputes or any of that kind of stuff in heaven. But here we do. And uh, women deacons is one of them. Even if you have men clearly established in 1 Timothy 3 as elders, there are still some that say the one woman man passage requires that women cannot be deacons either. So I respect that position. I do. I could almost go that way. Uh, But let me tell you why I don't go that way. Uh, If you look at the passage, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 describes elders. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 10 describes deacons. Deacons likewise are to be uh, men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Verse 11, in the same way... What's the next part? Wives. Or... Steve, help me out. What's the Greek word? I'm Gnaikos. Okay, so plural women or wives. Okay, that's the whole issue. Um, And we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Their wives... The word there isn't there, it's just gunaikos, but it's just wives or women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, temperate, and trustworthy in everything. Verse 12, a deacon must be the husband of one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing, great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Basically, the reason that I believe that women could be deacons um, is because of the structure of the passage, Okay. The structure of the passage is deacons from 8 to 10, the mysterious verse in question, verse 11, and then deacons again in verse 12 and 13. So for me, I just, I just have one question. It's a key question. Why would there be anything said of the wives of deacons but not of the wives of elders? That's a question that I... You know, and, and the only good answer I can come up with is that Paul was intending verse 11 to cover both elders and deacons, wives. And then he says basically, in effect, oh, yeah, one more thing about deacons. And then he goes back and gives us two more verses on deacons. And that's possible. It really is. Paul isn't always perfectly logical in what he presents. That doesn't mean that he ever erred. But I can prove, for example, in Romans 5, that he opens a line of thought that he never finishes. But you do get the idea. For example, just as 
sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sin. For before the law was given, sin was not taken into account. But where there is no law, there is no sin. Nevertheless, sin reigned from the death. Of, well, wait, 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 wait. All right. A lot of words, Paul. Let's go back to the original structure. Just as, what are you waiting for to finish it? So also, there is none. It never comes. Does that mean there's an error in the Bible? Not at all. You know what the so also is. It's just as in Adam, so also in Christ. He gets his idea across. There's nothing missing. He's just missing that one word. It's like a parenthesis is open and it just never got closed. All right, that's not an error. I'm just telling you that's how he sometimes is. So therefore, I very much do res- uh, respect and in the, the group that was working on the draft, you know, some of them did not want to see women as, as deacons even so and others did. So... We could have an interesting discussion uh, about that, and the church has the freedom to remove that and change it if it's so. If it doesn't agree with me, um, and wants to have only men deacons, that's fine. Now, if some of you have been uh, here in this church for ten, almost ten years, and you think I'm changing my mind on women deacons, okay, I'm not. I always tried to be careful to say, as we presently understand deacons as somewhat acting like lay elders, etc. I always had to put in those extra words. Some might have said, well, why don't you get the whole elder deacon thing figured out? And then it's just the order that it seemed best to deal with it. It seemed that gender and authority came to us first. Plurality of elders has come in later. If you find fault with that, I'm guilty as charged. But I tried to be very clear every time that there might come a time in the future that we would actually entertain the concept of women deacons. Yes, Steve. Go ahead. <laughs> I think that 1 Timothy 5 actually lays out more qualifications for potential deaconesses. Possibly. It's possible, Steve. Um, I, I th- yeah, there's a number of things there. Uh, it seems that these women are set apart and they're not getting remarried. They're not getting remarried. And, um, you know, they made some kind of a pledge to the church and then they go back on that pledge and Paul's troubled by that. It's not an easy passage to interpret. But uh, I, it seems to me, uh, let me just speak pragmatically, although I don't usually like to do this. But it seems to me that there's a place for women recognized by the church in certain patterns of ministry. There's frankly places where they can go that the men really can't go. And specifically, it's in ministering to other women. So, but I don't, I don't want to do it by pragmatics. I mean, pragmatics is not a good answer, but you can see why. And then that makes Romans 16.1 pretty easy to interpret. Phoebe was a deaconess. It's that simple. So, yeah. If we decide that the Bible does allow for women deacons and we say we don't want women deacons anyway, then that seems to undercut the rationale for having elders that we're trying to do it by the Bible. What you're saying would be true if all things were if all things were equally clear in the Bible. I've just shown you my evidence. Some people consider it flimsy at best. It's a structural argument. You see what I'm saying? And it comes down to this one word, gunaikas, which could be translated either way. So I, as I said, it just has to do with a humility that comes from realizing how many different views there are and how they argue and willingness to accept one another and to have different views. But in the end, the church has to make a decision. And so I don't think we've thrown the Bible out if we end up this way or that way on women deacons. I really don't. I just don't think it's a make-or-break issue. There are many solid conservative churches that have women deacons and male elders, male-only elders. And then there are others that don't. They just don't. And I respect both of those views. Yeah, go ahead. The word in verse 11, deaconess, or is it just women or white? Let me look again. Uh, It doesn't mention the word at all. There is no deaconess. There's no feminine version. Um, There is the feminine version in Romans 16.1. That's why I just mentioned it a moment ago. That's, you know, then that gets easy. You're dealing with Phoebe as a deaconess. Yes. In the uh, draft, clearly uh, these are not men and women serving together. Right. uh, But the setup is you have men and a separate group of women. Right. Presumably to do women's ministry. Yeah, just just that even even within the deacons there might be different functions, and some of those functions are more appropriate for men and some more appropriate for women. The discussion centered on serving the Lord's table and and taking the offering, 
And again, you know, you're talking about gray area here, but this is what we're doing tonight. We're doing, you know, those things. So we love each other. We pray for each other. We support each other. But here it is. All right. Why would you not have a woman standing up and serving the Lord's Supper and collecting the offering? Well, listen, uh, you know, I'm not I'm even lower on the hierarchy of certainty there. Calvin passes the Lord's Supper plate. I mean, if he's the next person sitting in the pew. All right. I mean, he does does. If you're sitting in the pew and the thing comes to you, you're going to pass the plate, right? I'm talking about the Lord's Supper, right? But let me ask you another question, okay? Would it trouble you to see Calvin stand up at the end of the pew and take the plate and bring it around? Would that bother you? Come on, be honest. Yes, it would bother you, all right? You know, some of you it might not, but the issue is how much of a stumbling block are you wanting to put up in your public worship on Sunday morning? There are certain roles that establish, you know, that have been established as men leading. Now, people push on them all the time, et cetera. You can, you can push if you want. But you've got that whole head covering thing. And I've looked at the head covering, and it's not an easy passage, all right? 1 Corinthians 11. We're doing all the fun ones tonight. 1 Corinthians the head covering. Why don't we have head coverings? Well, there are many groups that do, and you could probably find a church around here if you'd like to wear a head covering. But, uh, you know, what is going on there is I think what we're trying to do, faithful, you know, conservative or, or, you know, respecting the text exegesis, could it be that there is a, a timeless transferable principle in 1 Corinthians 11 and then a culturally based exemplification of it? The timeless transferable principle is male leadership in the local church, clear male leadership in the local church. Nobody doubts it. Everybody knows men are leading this church. The way that that congregation showed it was head coverings, if in fact it was head coverings and not merely hairstyles, which thank God we don't have to get into that tonight. But there could be, you know, this is a way that we show that men lead, all right? Look, deity of Christ, you can push all all you want. It's not tumbling down. It's not going to fall. If you want to push on women should be able to do this and this and this, you can do that. But all I'm saying is you can, there are some issues that cause people to stumble they say, how then are we displaying male leadership, et cetera? So it was a judgment call. Again, the church can discuss it, and if it wants to have women doing this and that, then, you know, I guess we'll decide what we'll do at that point. Yes? Are you still flexible on the issue of women deacons, or is it decided in your mind? Well, it's what I believe, all right? But I just don't believe it like I believe other things. You know, there are just some issues that I think if the church went what I consider apostate on it, and I didn't think I could do anything more about it, I would have to leave. And I think if we had women elders here, well, I told the church, you know, I, I said if I believed that it was that kind of an issue, and I never taught on it, I was defending why I, I, I teach on it, then, you know, that I would have to leave a church that went apostate on it. But I chose not to leave. I decided to stay and to teach and to preach, et cetera. We went that direction. Um, and I thank God for it. The church is in a different place now than it was, you know. So, yes, go ahead, Susan. Indeed, it might. I could imagine it would be a stumbling block for some to see a woman pass the offering plate. On the other hand, I understand, I can easily concede that it would be a stumbling block for others that if we do not allow women to do other tasks like that, that clearly do not involve teaching or integral acts of exercising authority. Because the other stumbling block is that this church really doesn't respect the idea that women, that, that men and women are one in Christ. It's happened, uh, certainly. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. And, uh, you know, we can't basically constantly be taking a poll of what would cause the most people to stumble and all that kind of thing. And that's frankly where Hebrews thirteen seventeen and submission to God-ordained leadership comes. You know, at that point, basically, there are going to be judgment calls. And, you know, the church, like, I mean, there are all kinds of ones. Like, would it be okay if I do such and such to express my love for Jesus during Sunday morning worship? You know, um, there just has to be decency and good order, it says in 1 Corinthians 14. You know, there are some passages in which, you know, it seems that women aren't allowed to speak at all. Um, I don't think that's how 1 Corinthians 14 should be, uh, should be interpreted, but others do, you know. I think what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14 is the issue of weighing and assessing of prophecies. And uh, basically, that was an authoritative role, to basically say whether the prophecy you just heard was consistent with the established body of, of the faith, so to speak, as it was growing in those pre-New New Testament, having been finished canon days, all right? Uh, there had to be an assessment or a weighing of prophecy, and that had to be done by men. That's what I think silent in the churches means. Yeah, go ahead. Is there um, 
we imply that a deaconess is the wife only of a deacon, as opposed to a deaconess being having a husband but not that that husband not being a deacon, or is it? Are you talking about verse eleven? Are you talking about verse eleven? Because, or I'm I'm kind of wondering why it's translated wife, if it's really there's this office of deaconess separate from this office. Well, people who translate it wife don't think there's an office of deaconess. Okay. They're they're just saying that because the home, I think they would argue this way, because the home is on display, then the wife needs to have her act together too. Basically, that's the mentality. But put it directly, can you have a deaconess who has a husband who is not a deacon? Or does the husband have to be a deacon in order for the wife to be a deaconess? There's nothing that would say, I don't know any verse that would say that if there are such things as deaconesses, that the husband must also serve as a deacon. I don't, I don't know of any verse that would require that. Yes, go ahead. Has there been any thought to, uh, it seems like in uh, chapter 5, Paul describes a sort of uh, stipend relationship with these older widows uh, mm-hmm. who become servants of the church. Has there been any thought to instituting something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually think there literally is money, but I don't think it's necessarily tied to like work for hire kind of thing, like they're on, on the payroll. I think they're rather just being supported by the church. And actually, it's a very important question when it just comes to urban ministry and other things. Like, um, it's a very significant thing for the church to take, the, take on the burden of supporting a household, basically. And that's where that whole in 1 Timothy 5 passage is, you know, that if there's a man in that family and he's not taking care of his women, his mother, you know, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's very strong words. And what, he's get, what, what you're getting there is that why should the church be burdened if there's a man there who can be taken care of you know, his mother, let's say, in that case. But the idea here is, uh, I think, that they are on a list of care so that the widows would be, it might even be the Act 6 issue of a daily distribution of food where they're being cared for, uh, etc. Um, but it seems that there's more than that going on, is that they're also expected to do some ministry for the church. You know, that they're, and, but I just don't know that, I don't, Steve, maybe you can help me with this, I don't know that the word deaconess appears in that passage. I don't think it even does. These are just widows. They're widows that are being cared for, and there's some expectation that they're going to be exemplary and that they're going to be serving the church in some way. Yeah. It's interesting that the word translated wife or woman is found three times in this passage, two clearly referring to the relationship between a man and a woman. And the other one is this one, and it's the same word only plural, uh, which I suppose could be used for an argument that this is the wives of, of the deacons. Yeah. Anyway, I, I want you to know, friends, um, you know, we were rummaging around today in some of the hard, hardest issues that, that divide churches that people have had trouble with. And I think you all rummaged with me um, in, a, in a sweet way. Keep continuing to pray for our church as we uh, discern God's will in difficult things. I think it's really a measure of the um, unity of the church and the maturity of the church that we can Uh, Look at these difficult verses, these difficult issues, and continue to love one another and pray for each other as we end up having to have some kind of policy and some kind of decision on these things. Um, And uh, pray that God would continue to keep the church one. Because, you know, our unity is incredibly important. We really present unity to the surrounding community. They they will know that uh, you are my disciples if you love one another. And so... You know, if you're discussing with somebody who doesn't share your opinion on one of these debatable points, let's keep that in mind. Is your point, your issue so important that they need, you need to break fellowship with a brother or sister? I think schismatics, I think that's a big, big issue when people decide to divide over something. And so let's be sure that it's something worthy of that. But anyway, I commend you for your questions. Continue to pray for me. I tell you this, I have learned a ton in being pastor over the last 10 years. I, I just know a lot more about God's faithfulness, about the love of God's people, about specific texts of Scripture that I hadn't studied thoroughly yet. I'm continuing to learn and grow. And uh, you guys are too, I hope. So let's keep praying for this. Next time, just a heads up, we're going to talk about congregationalism, which is also controversial, but for some reason people don't get all angry and upset about it. I don't know why it's interesting, but we'll talk about congregationalism. Maybe you do. Well, (laughs) sorry, I stand corrected. Um, but uh, there's that. We're going to talk about how elders are identified and established as elders, what process uh, we go through with that, and then um, some other issues related to that. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for being here tonight. We needed your help. 
Uh, Father, I pray, uh, and I pray it all the time, but I pray even more tonight that if there's anything that I've said uh, that is contrary to your will or contrary to the scripture, that you would allow it to take no effect. I'm not, I'm not abdicating my responsibility as a teacher, but just confessing that some things are easier for me to see and understand from scripture than others. So I just pray, Father, that you would um, help us to continue to think these things through, to be uh, strong in your word. Bottom line, Lord, we pray that you would establish in, in this church the elders that you intend to, um, to lead. I pray that you would make that clear to all of us um, and that you would lead us, O oh Lord, through, through them. Father, I thank you uh, for the, the scripture. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans. You have come to us and you've given us everything we need. There's nothing missing from your scripture. We shouldn't ask or yearn for a 67th book of the Bible. Lord, if there's any disagreements or any problems we have, it's because we uh, don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And so I confess on behalf of my brothers and sisters here in the whole church, in any point in which we're in error, it's because we haven't studied the scriptures well enough and that we have some hardness in our hearts. So forgive us for that. So continue to lead us and teach us. And we thank you for this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.